0: So if you're going to ask the question to most Christians, is God in control? They're probably going to say yes. I think the majority of Christians are pretty comfortable with the idea that God's in control. If God didn't have control, if he lacked control, then it wouldn't seem like he's God. God's the greatest, so it seems like he would have control rather than not having control. Don't just take my word for it, though. One of the most respected scholars... An academic uh, that few can even believe, you know, ivory, ivory tower type here, you know, best New Testament scholar of all time, Beyonce, pop singer. <laughs> there you go. Very, very rich scholar here, Beyonce. It's like, wow, Pastor Nate quotes Beyonce in a sermon. It's very interesting. Hmm. God has a plan and God is in control of everything. That's what Beyonce says. So even she says it. And I'm obviously kidding when I say she's a great scholar. Um, that's not my point. The point is, is that this idea that God is in control is so embedded in our culture. It's, so, it's such a, it's a widely held belief that even pop singers hold to it. And this belief, as I said, is held by the vast majority of Christians throughout history and time. But I might add there is a vocal minority of Christians who would say God is not in control. I'll give you three examples of this. This is what famous pastor Tony Campolo says, and he's very popular. Uh, He says, I'm not questioning the extent of God's power. I believe that God has chosen not to be in control of everything going on in this world. So Tony Campolo says God's not in control. Roger Olson agrees with Campolo when he says, I often see raised eyebrows among Christian audiences I speak to when I say that God is not in control but in charge. Yeah, I bet you get some raised eyebrows, buddy. I always explain, go, on, go on to explain that God limits God's self and allows things to happen that are not antecedent to his master plan, his antecedent will. And the reason is to allow free will in the world. So, yeah, this particular view of free will that this theologian holds to says, yeah, God's not in control of things. And uh, it isn't just a a person's specific view of free will that says God's not in control, but actually the tremendous evil and suffering in the world. You know, the Holocaust, all of these horrid events, school shootings that occur, these painful events, uh, suffering and evil. And this is why this popular blogger writes, uh, who doesn't believe God's in control, the title of the article, of course, is a dead giveaway. He says, please stop saying, god is in control so you know what he thinks so he cites this and he says mom if god is in control why did he let dad leave us that is the question my co-worker's teenage daughter asked on the way to school the other morning i told her god doesn't make people do things my co-worker said because every person has free will everyone gets to choose what they do but it's that's hard for a teenager to understand that's hard for anyone to understand frankly if God is all-powerful and in control, why does God allow so many bad things to happen in the world? People have struggled with that question for thousands of years. There's a whole Old Testament book, Job, about it. No responsible person of faith can avoid wrestling with the question because the Bible teaches us about God sometimes that contradict what we see in real life. So obviously it's going to go on to say, yeah, and the Bible's not teaching. Or he would say that he seems to, to look at reality and say yeah god's not in control how can god be in control bad i mean when something bad happens god's powerful he could stop it if he weren't in control he could just you know someone's getting hurt he could just stop it And so what we're going to see here in Romans 8.28 is that God does have a good reason for permitting evil and suffering in his plan. And in fact, God is in control of our lives is not something that should bring us sadness or angst or fear or insecurity, but rather it takes it all away. It gives us tremendous comfort and peace that God is in control. And we're going to see this as we go through the verses here, Romans 8.26 starting. Likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit member of the Trinity helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So this verse is saying you don't have to have, you know, perfectly structured prayers, the most articulate prayers imaginable, all those things don't matter. In fact, all of us on some level, if we're being really honest, we have imperfect prayers. We're weak, we're ignorant, we're sinful. We don't know what to pray for, but the Holy Spirit, it says here, prays perfectly for us. And the Holy Spirit knows what to pray for us for because he's God, he knows, he knows everything. And because the Holy Spirit uh, is God, his thoughts are way above ours. We can't even comprehend it. He is infinite. We are finite. And so we can't even fully understand what he is communicating to the father in our behalf. And so when the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and prays for us, he is, he is communicating in such a deep and profound way that we cannot even express it. In human words, that's how deep it is. And then it says groaning too deep for words. The Greek for too deep is better translated groaning too inexpressible. You're not able to express it in human language. That's how deep it is. And it cannot be expressed in human language because God's mind is beyond the constructions of human language, beyond all that. This is how Isaiah puts it. In Isaiah 55, 8-9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so, the Holy Spirit expresses himself to the Father on our behalf in this incomprehensible way. For us, the most perfect prayer prayer so beautiful and amazing we can't even comprehend its beauty and its majesty so yeah we have it's amazing if you think about it we have you know you know before the father the both uh, the uh, the son and the spirit are praying for us it says that in book of hebrews that jesus christ is our high priest he is praying for us the holy spirit is praying for us so yeah god they know what to pray for us over and they and god accomplishes those prayers because he knows what's Ultimately, best for us. Look what it says in Romans eight twenty seven, and he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints. It's believers. Anybody who believes in Christ is a saint, according to the will of God. So it's saying, yeah, that the spirit makes the best prayers for us according to the will of God. God's will, as we'll see in Romans eight twenty eight, is to work out all good for us, and so He knows. The best thing to pray for us, we don't know what's the best. And I think that anybody who's got kids knows this is a perfect analogy. Because if I were to let Abigail and Kenny have their way, they would eat sweets for every single meal. If they said if they, if they could pick out their meals, it would be like cheese sticks and like ice cream and tootsie rolls. I mean, because if you let a kid go wild, they're gonna they're gonna be malnourished and unhealthy. And so we, as parents, thankfully, we say, hey, you know, this is you're gonna have some broccoli. You're gonna have something that's good for you, even though it may not be the most tasty thing for you imaginable and that's what God does for us we don't know what's best for us we're clueless just like a child's like a two or three-year-old child's clueless on what to eat they're all going to be taking the donuts over there right and Abigail was trying to barter for a second cookie but I split it in half like a good parent i was <laughs> kidding you know, your kid had two cookies. I'm not judging you. I'm just kidding. But that that's the point. Is we, don't, we don't know what's best for us. And, and so, like, a kid doesn't. And so that's even, even I think, amplified on the relationship with, we have with God. And so he prays what's best for us, even though we don't know what that is. So even if we're making terrible prayer requests a, a, a prayer that god does not want for our life god knows what's better for us it, to conform us to the image of christ for our final and ultimate good and we see that in romans eight twenty-eight. he says and we know that for those who love god all things work out together for good for those who are called according to his purpose now other than john three sixteen, this verse is kind of a big deal right i mean this is like the most popular verse ever I don't know, it might be more popular. I, I think it is popular, more popular than John 3.16. It's everywhere. This, and my wife and I were watching a, a television show called Manifest, someone from the church recommended it uh, to us. It's on Netflix, I don't know if anybody's ever seen, who's seen Manifest here, does anybody know? I'm talk- okay, so I'm not, I, I felt like it was obscure, but it actually got more popular when it got on Netflix. It was canceled in a previous uh, broadcast. And the entire theme of the show, it's so interesting. It's so focused on Romans 8.28. It's, it's like one of the main points, discussion points throughout the show. It appears on pillows everywhere. The whole, the whole thing is about like a plane that got, got, that got displaced for like a long period of time. And they're trying to figure out like how to go about life after they've been displaced for two or three years in this time warp. And guess what the flight is called? The plane is called flight 8.28 after Romans 8.28. And so my wife and I were watching this. We were like totally confused. We're like, is this like a Christian show? Like what's the deal here? This has got to be a Christian show. And we found out it totally wasn't. Like not even at all. Like not even close. And you, As you go to set, season two, you can totally see that it's not a Christian s- show. Like it's very obvious. <laughs> a lot of things that go on. So yeah, but this verse is so profound. Here's my point. This verse is so profound that that ho- people in Hollywood find this to be comforting. That they base an entire TV, a second tv show around it and this is what the late uh, theologian rc sproul said commenting on this passage romans eight twenty eight is the most comforting text in all of scripture it assures that believers that all tragedies are ultimate blessings so this verse changes your thinking your entire outlook on life You have an optimistic view of things in reality rather than a negative view of things in reality. So let's look at this text carefully and try to unpack this profoundly comforting uh, verse in God's word. So first off, Paul says, we know. He means to say "Like we can know this with, with a great degree of certainty. We can count on this promise. It's not like I believe or I hope, but we know we have confidence of this promise. And this promise is not for everyone. This promise is for those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior uh, and trust in him to forgive them of all their sins and Jesus died on the cross for all of your sins. God has saved them and gave them eternal life. That's who it is for. But you notice here, as you look at this text, he says, for those who love God. Why does he say, for those who love God? Why didn't he say for believers? Why does he choose to go with that kind of language? And I found that Martin Lloyd-Jones has the best answer to this and, and Tim Keller comments on this as well. He says, I believe that... That Paul had a special reason for using the term love rather than believing at this point one of the best ways whereby we can decide immediately if we love God or not is our reaction to adversity there are many people who when trials and tribulations arise they give up they feel Like they had been let down. And Tim Keller says much of the same thing. If you love God for who he is in himself, you make a commitment and you endure difficulty. But if you are using God for what he gives you, the gift rather than the giver of gifts, you bail out when suffering comes. So it shows, are you living life for things or things that God gives you? Or are you living life for God? Do you love God for God? You know, Romans 28 is not saying like, oh, if you get a flat tire... And you know, you have to pay to replace it, you'll get that money back. It's not talking about like prosperity, you know, well, if you lose your money, you're gonna get double back. That's not what Romans eight twenty-eight is about. It's not a prosperity gospel message. Rather, it is about the ultimate and final good of the believer, being conformed to the image of Christ. And so when, yeah, adversity comes, we have to check our hearts. Who are we serving? And and is it it may be painful, but we're being conformed to the image of Christ. So when Paul says all things work together for good, the Greek word here for together or works together is "sooner ergo," and it means that God takes all of the parts, what we, they might appear random or weird or strange, takes all of these parts and brings all the parts of everything and brings it together for a greater good. And uh, God is the one who is a subject of sentence. So this is not saying blind fate works all things out. It's the subject of the sentence is God and, uh, in, in the Greek. And it's very clear that it is God working, not some like you know fate or some other principle beyond God. Now the question that people struggle with, and this is the question of whether or not God is in control, is what is the scope of all things here? Because how you look at that kind of views, shapes your view. Do all things refer to all things, including our pain and our suffering and even our sin? And what scholars have come to the conclusion, that the Greek word panta, which means all, it does not mean some things, but it does in fact mean all things. And so scholars have come to this conclusion that this word in this context means that all things are being worked out for the believer. All the various things are being worked out for the Christian church, for those who trust in Christ. The scope is not limited here, but it's comprehensive. It has a comprehensive scope in reality. And that's why if you listen to most sermons on this, you're going to know pastors will take that view. They take that view because that's where modern scholarship is at right now. I'll give you uh, two examples from two of the greatest New Testament scholars uh, probably ever. I mean, They're very good scholars. Is Douglas Moo and Joseph Fitzmaier. Moo writes, a second difficulty in this verse is a scope of all things. We would expect that Paul has a particular in mind, the suffering of the present time, but the scope should probably not be restricted. Anything that is part of this life, even our sins, so even your failures, even your sins, can be, by God's grace, contributed towards the good. So Joseph F. Fitzmaier confirms this as well, that it includes all of the groanings of creation, not just a few things here and there. Ponta all things may be referring to sufferings in verses 7 to 18, but in all likelihood, it includes all the items mentioned in verses 18 through 27. Sufferings, destiny, and glory, the groaning of creation, Christian hope. So he puts all of creation, the groanings of creation, as working together for good. It's not a limited scope. The, the scope here is viewed as comprehensive by scholars. And this is not, the only place where we see God speaking this way through the apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 10 through 11 there is a cosmic universal scope and the same Greek word panta is used for this comprehensive plan that God has of creation so this really is the like the go-to verse for God's in control here "...as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will." All things according to the counsel of His will. So as you read through the Bible and look at what scholars say, it becomes very apparent that, yeah, what most Christians have this inkling towards that God is in control, it lines up with how things are. Now, I said at the beginning, there pe- people struggle through this teaching that God's in control. Let's go back to the free will question. Well, how can you have free will if God is in control? How can, how can I have any free will if God is, just has this kind of control? The question though that we have to kind of look at and think about critically is what does the person mean by the term free will? I mean, pretty much, I mean, everybody, believes in free will. I mean, no one wants to say that we're like just robots, like beep, 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 you know, like no one wants to say that. No, it's very commonsensical to say we have freedom of the will in some sense. I am certainly free. I'm held morally responsible when I make bad choices and so on. But what I found in studying this topic in graduate school is that there are lots of different views on how you take free will to be. What do you take that thing to be? And the view that is held by most academic philosophers today, is about 60% of them actually, is is that view of free will that they hold to, which is taught, isn't even inconsistent with Romans 8.28. And so at the end of the day, our, our views of free will should come from the word of God, and it's kind of nice, frankly, I think it's pretty nice if most of the academic philosophers happen to take the perspective on free will that is in agreement with Romans 8.28. I say, you know, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good deal right there. I'll take that deal. And uh, I don't even think there's a problem here. When people get into problems with Romans 8.28 is when they, like, do some navel gazing or whatever and they come up with their own special definition of free will that most ph- people working in the field of philosophy and free will disagree with, and they take that view that hardly anybody holds to, and then they impose it on scripture and say, okay, let's just say God's not in control. And to me, that seems a bit backwards because maybe reality is trying to tell you something when scholars in the Bible actually agree on a topic. And so I, I think that that's not really a huge issue here as a free will thing. But at the end of the day, I think the real problem, the root problem is evil. Evil hits us Not just intellectually and cognitively, evil hits us straight to the heart. When we see uh, children being hurt and abused, it just wrenches our heart. And we see evil and suffering and wickedness in the world. And so people ask the question, how can God be in control when these horrible things are happening? And the answer for believers, for those who believe in Romans 28, 28, is that those horrible, horrendous, painful things will work out for our final and ultimate good. This verse is not saying that those things are good in and of themselves, like when there's evil or suffering, say, oh, it's all good. And people say that like, it's all good. No, it isn't all good, actually. There are really like terrible things. So the point is, is that not everything is good, but the bad things lead to a greater and ultimate good. And that is the way that God has revealed himself in scripture, is that God has people doing evil in his plan, and he takes those evil events, and he works them out for a final and greater ultimate good, so that if God stopped that evil, then a greater good would not be accomplished by it. So the reason why God isn't constantly intervening like this is a ghost house, like things are constantly floating or, you know, people try to hurt somebody, they punch and they're like, punch stand still or something like that. The reason why God's not constantly intervening like this is a haunted house is because by those painful events or whatever it is, a greater good is being accomplished. And you see this really clearly in the story of Joseph, which thankfully everybody knows if you've seen like Joseph, like Technicolor dream Coat kind of stuff or if, yeah, it's pretty popular. But Joseph, you know, he was betrayed by his brothers. They were jealous of his fancy coat and his love, his favoritism that he had with his father. And so they threw him in a pit and they sold him off to slavery. Not the best siblings, let's be honest. huh? Kind of a little. And so yeah, he was he was falsely accused. Once he was thrown to slavery, and then he's thrown into an Egyptian prison. Which you're like, gosh, this is guys getting this guy's getting the short end of the stick right here. Goodness gracious! And so when he was in prison, God gave him the power to predict dreams. That goes up to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, hey, I got a dream. Can you predict this? He, Joseph does, and it, he predicts a famine that's going to save everybody. He becomes the second most powerful person in the world, and he's able to prevent people from starvation and death because they're able to plan and for this famine that god used uh him to predict pharaoh's dream with and so his brothers come back they want you know grain and they want you know meats and treats and everything and you know at the end they realize like yeah this is we really messed up with this guy and he's all powerful now and so they're begging for forgiveness at the end of the life i I, by the way i make it sound like they're not really sincere I, i think the text intends us to take their their repentance as sincere his brothers that is but look at what he says i mean this is like Romans 8, 28, writ large in this verse. He says, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of your servants, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you... You meant evil against me. So they planned to sin against him. They meant evil. But what's the divine element to this? But God meant it for good. It's not saying, oh, the evil didn't exist. It's all good. No, that evil that God used it for ultimate good for everybody to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So if his brothers didn't do that great evil, then a greater good would not be accomplished. We can say then that God has, e- has evil and suffering in his plan to bring about a greater good. Without that evil and suffering, a greater good would not be achieved or accomplished. So God always has reasons, sufficient reasons, good reasons for the evil and suffering in his plan, even when we don't know those reasons. And we may not know them in eternity because God is infinite. We are finite. He's incomprehensible on some level. We don't know the infinite mind of God. We're finite beings. We may not know in heaven. And so because as we read in Isaiah, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Now, that's not to say, don't misunderstand me here, that you're never, ever going to know any reason for why God does anything in your life. Like you're like, I have no idea what's going on here. That's not what I'm saying. You may know a reason within 10 minutes of something happening. 10 years of something happening. Sometimes it's a bit longer, 50 years while you were alive. And I think many of us experience God working in our lives. And you, you, you talk to the, you just have this experience where you're thinking about something and you call somebody up and they say the right thing to you at the right time, exactly what you were thinking. Uh, I have, like, weird experiences like that. I've talked to others. A lot of people have experiences like that. Or, you know, you, you know, the right friend calls you when you need a job and he tells you about the right job that's available or things just open up. And it's like this, this spooky kind of level of providence. It's like, wow. It's like, there's, it's like there's someone behind all of this. We see this happening. And it's happened to me many times when I'm preaching a sermon. Someone will come up to me and say, hey, so, like, uh, have you been spying on me? I'm like, What? I'm not like a creepy person. Like, thanks for assuming I'm a spy, you know. How do you know all of these things I've been dealing with? How did you know to preach everything? That just happened today. I'm like, look, I'm not spying on you because I don't have time to spy on you. But it's because God's in control. He, He has a plan, a master plan. He knows the beginning from the end. He set things up. He is in control. And so God is working out things right now in your life for your good and his glory. And so if you're going through cancer, death of a loved one, divorce, loss of a job, that isn't just for nothing. It is for something greater. It is for your good and the glory of God, your ultimate good. And that's a, I would say that's a profound comfort for us as believers because it always encourages us to have an optimistic view of reality, that all of reality is, is shaping towards your ultimate and final good. You have every reason then to be positive no matter what you're going through. You have the, you have the peace that can surpass understanding. And Romans 8.28 teaches us that everything that happens bad in this life has a silver lining. Everything in this life, I mean, you can always say the glass is half full and that's I find that so uh, gives me such an amount of peace and comfort that even that means even your greatest sin your greatest failure your greatest pain is not for some for, for nothing it's not for nothing it's for something uh, there, there's no tears that you have in this life that are, are purposeless and empty it is all being worked out for a greater good Just because you may have crashed and burned, wrecked your life by doing someone doing something mean to you, or whether you've done something terrible, as long as you're breathing right now and trusting in Christ, God is working that failure, that mess up for your ultimate good. And if Romans 8:28 is not true, if it's false, and there is no God, then everything that happens to you is just a matter of chance. It's an accident. It's a coincidence there's no purpose and meaning to anything that happens in your life it literally quite literally is all for nothing and that nothing is being worked out for you because there is no god and the universe ultimately doesn't give a rip about you doesn't care about you now if you believe this what will that give you i would say profound fear anxiety desperation depression but you see the truth of Romans 28 Romans 8:28 gives us this this deep sense of hope, optimism and comfort that surpasses understanding. The point is is well reflected in a movie called Signs which I might add is like the best movie of all time in one of my... I mean, you know, I always say that, I guess. Like, everything's the best of me, right? There's always, like, max superlatives with Nate Taylor, right? Everything's, like, the highest level, right? Can't, like, moderate myself here, you know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's the top ten, okay? It's, like, up there. Uh, and who's seen Signs? I'm curious. Okay, so I'm not quoting a totally obscure movie here. But I, in my opinion... And I had a pastor disagree with me, and then I read him this part, and he agreed with me. So, I, my in my opinion... It is like one of the most, like, best Christian movies. I said it, Christian movie without being like, you know, making you want to take a shower after watching it. It's not too preachy or like, you know, like sappy, no, or anything like that. It's it's ironic, though, because most people, like, just when they think of signs, they think of like, oh, yeah, you know, Mel Gibson protecting his family from aliens. That's what signs is about. It's deeper than that. But the movie is really about, if you watch it and you think about the whole context of it, it's about a pastor who loses his faith because his wife gets hit by a car and dies. And that's because, his wife, uh, because of his wife's dying last words. He actually ends up saving the day. It's amazing. Uh, well, God is saving the day in the movie, in the context of the movie. But because his wife dies, well, he loses his faith because he believes, Mel Gibson's character believes, which is his name is Graham, he believes that there's nothing looking out from the universe, that no, no one cares. No one cares about him. That's why his wife died. So he loses his faith. And so. When they uh, figure out that aliens are coming to earth with the lights in the sky, his brother, who's living with him, helping him raise his kids, says, you know, I- you know this, all these alien stuff, it really scares me. Can you just pretend to be like who you used to be, like a pastor and you used to like comfort me? Can you like, pretend that you have faith? And this is what Mel Gibson says to his brother in that time, and it's one of like, the best lines ever. Um, of course probably equally great with Braveheart if I'm being honest but it's a, it's a pretty amazing line here he says people break down into two groups when they are experiencing something lucky group number one sees it as more than luck more than coincidence they see it as a sign evidence that there is someone up there watching out for them group number two sees it as pure luck Just a happy turn of chance. I'm sure uh, the people in group number two are looking at those 14 lights, the alien lights in the sky, in a very suspicious way. For them, the situation is 50-50. Could be bad, could be good. But deep down, they feel that whatever happens, they're on their own. And that fills them with fear. Yeah, there are those people, but there's a lot of people in group number two, when they see those 14 lights, they're looking at a miracle. And deep down, they feel that whatever is going to happen, there will be someone there to help them. And that fills them with hope. See, what you have to to ask yourself is what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs it sees miracles, or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or look at the question this way Is it possible that there are no coincidences? And you see, if Romans 8.28 is true, then there are no coincidences. Everything happens by design, and the rest of the movie actually plays this out perfectly. It's amazing. The movie signs, uh, shows kind of what Paul means when he says that he that God is working all things out together in the Greek. It's saying that many you know weird elements or strange or difficult elements are being brought together for a final good and it, the movie is like excuse me it's called romans 828 not signs but anyways they, you know no one will go see it then probably but all of the weird quirks that his family has in the movie contributes to them surviving from the alien attack even his like as i said before his wife's last words when she was dying His son has really, really bad asthma. His daughter has OCD. And actually, I found this so comical because I have this problem. My wife gets mad at me. (laughs) That's what I do. She's not mad at me, but you know, it's not fun having to wash cups. And I, I help out too, washing cups, just so we're clear. But you know, like I always... I always like get a glass of water and I'm like, oh, it's been out for 30 minutes. I gotta get a new one because I, you know, who knows, maybe a fly landed in it. I don't know if, you know, why, you know, so his daughter has this like OCD tendency to constantly refill cups of water like yours truly. I actually like by my bedside, I have like a, like a collection of cups, <laughs> like very bizarre. And, and his brother who's, you know, around his age, uh, has this bizarre, I mean, he has this weird uh, minor league record. He's got the longest home run ever, but he also has the most strikeouts because of his wild way of swinging, like he was chopping down a tree, the wild way he has at, at swinging the bat. And so you look at all of these, like, weird events and about this family, you're like, oh, that doesn't really, those are just random things, that doesn't really matter. But at the end, finally, when they confront the alien in their house, the alien grabs Mel Gibson's son and tries to put poisonous gas in him to kill him, but his lungs close because remember he has asthma. And as they stand before this alien, unsure what to do, you know, I mean, what do you do when an alien's in front of you you and holding your son and putting poisonous gas in him? You kind of freeze, right? You're like, I don't think any of us have like a a game plan for that. Right. So Mel Gibson immediately has a flashback of his uh, wife's last words when she was dying. Um, he, she, she tells him to see, and she says, just, just look around and see. And then she says, tell your brother Merrill, the guy who can swing like a lumberjack and highest, uh, farthest home run. He says, tell your brother Merrill to swing away. And so Mel Gibson looks around the room, and he sees the 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 baseball that was used for the record home run. He he says, "Meryl, swing away!" And so his brother's just hitting the alien, boom, boom, like a crazy person, boom, boom, knocking over stuff, and of course knocks over a glass of water because they're everywhere because of his daughter's crazy OCD tendency, and it it starts hurting the alien. The, The water is the alien's kryptonite, and so at the end they defeat the alien because of the water and he's swinging around and it all works together and then he's, he's, he's holding his son hoping his son wakes up from the asthma attack and he's like his lungs are closed so the, the poison didn't get in and at the end of the, of the film the son wakes up and asks his dad did someone save us and he says yes baby Think someone did, and so he's referring to God there, of course. And at the end of the movie, you see him, uh, you know, getting ready to go preach again because he's got his faith back because he's come to believe that things are not just accidents, are not just coincidences, but everything happens for a reason. And I have seen many examples of that. I mean, you look at you know Romans eight twenty eight in the life of Joni e. Erickson Tada this 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 Poor lady, you know, had a diving accident. It's a quadriplegic. And she has, because of her disability, has inspired millions of people to follow Christ. She's brought so many people to Christ. And I would say that would not have happened had that tragedy not occurred. But I think if we're being more honest, there are things that go wrong in your life. And I've said this before that you may never see the reason for it. And as you're living this life, you may never see the reason for it. And so when Paul says all things work out for good, he doesn't mean, again, in the immediate. He means over the long haul, the final and ultimate conclusion. And I have seen uh, in, in my own life this work out, um, or in the lives of others in my life. Um, but of a person who's just been dead for 25 years, impact me and impact others, I'll tell you the story there was a kid raised in Southern California named Greg Bonson. And this young man, he loved sports more than anything. He lived and breathed sports, football, and all that kind of stuff. He loved sports. And so it was a huge uh, blow for little Greg when he entered into high school, and it was discovered that he had a rare and horrible heart defect that would prevent him from doing athletics Pretty much forever, his whole life. It's a very, very severe heart defect he had. I mean, you can imagine how a young kid felt. One of his greatest love, playing sports and doing athletics, was taken away when the kids were running around all healthy, playing sports. So what Greg did... He took all of his energy and competitiveness into academics like Christian philosophy, reading the Bible like a maniac, studying the arguments for God's existence. He got straight A's in high school, seminary, and his PhD program in philosophy. And he did a lot of debates. He was so good at, at, at doing discussions and debates with people who didn't believe in God. And he would prove the arguments for God's existence so clearly that people would jokingly call him the man that atheists feared the most. Kind of a funny Uh, expression there Um, it sounds like he's like a conqueror or something but a weird way but yeah and he was a pastor of a small church of 50 people in Long Beach but you see he finally died of a rare uh, heart that that rare heart condition in 1995 I think he was only uh, 48 or 49 he was very young when he died and you think wow that's really sad this heart condition but you see his life's work inspired me to be a pastor and um, inspired me to become to Christ. I remember uh, I was looking at his debate uh, with some friends, and I listened to his, his discussion with this atheist guy, and he proved that God exists. And I'm like, well, if this is true, I gotta become a Christian, so I became a Christian. And then I read about his life, and I'm like, oh, I wanna be a pastor too, just like this guy. This guy's amazing, and what he did with his life, and how passionate he was about leading others to Christ, even though he could never play sports. And, and so I, in my ministry, um, God has used me and blessed me to bring others to, to saving faith in Christ. But you see, I want you to get this point. None of that would have happened. I don't want you to miss this. None of that would have happened unless a young man who loves sports had that taken away from him, that, that he was devastated by that. And so as we look at your life, everything you do has impact and meaning. Even the bad things has impact and meaning on and on and on past the point you live. And we can never forget about the big picture. And that is especially true when we are suffering. That something we are doing right now that we're going through a hard time could lead others to Christ, could help people long beyond your death. You do not know the ripple effects of eternity, but God does. And he's working them out for your good. So as we struggle in faith, Let us never forget that God is working out all things for your final and ultimate good. Let's pray.